0: Hi, and welcome to another episode of Data Futurology. My name is Felipe Flores. I am your host. Thank you for being here. I hope you're having a wonderful week. Today, we have a special type of episode. This is a presentation from Data Science Melbourne Meetup Group, currently the second largest data science meetup group in the world. In our partnership with them, we have recorded the presentations from one of the evenings. The topic is analytics in the FMCG space. FMCG stands for fast-moving consumer goods. So this is the type of products that go into grocery stores mostly. It has a few presentations from very large brands. It was an exciting topic and a great evening. I hope you enjoy the talks.
1: So they're kind of the five points and and, and actually you've got all the major companies are excellent at these things. I mentioned Mondelez within Australia certainly is the leader in its retail relationships. Kraft Heinz, I mean, it is one of the largest companies in the world. You wouldn't know that the brands it has sit within the same company, but it has that scale that enables it to grow over time. AB InBev, a good example of M&A Consolidator. Now, how is that actually then sort of changing now? And I think that the thing to re- keep in mind is that this is impacting all of those categories, whether it's beer or it's soap or it's chips that we're, we're eating. So if you think about those five sort of categories, you're really being disrupted by a few things. So if we think about brand building, we're being disrupted by sort of millennial preferences. So millennials who are coming through in, in terms of a demographic group are now much more likely, they're more promiscuous buyers. They have much larger repertoires in terms of the amount of need to be better at managing many small, Smaller brands in a more nimble way versus having one big brand, which everyone's going to buy. That's not the way consumers buy these days. You've got new channels. So you've got e commerce emerging. You've got independent sales channels emerging. Right now, a millennial buyer, 40% of millennials say that they check online before they go into a physical store so like this is really disrupting the market i mean coles just announced its results uh yesterday gave visibility of its online channel because well frankly for 10 years it was probably so bad they didn't want people to know what they were losing but they're now making money and so these kind of emergence of new channels is really impacting our business you've then got hyper localization so if you think about like new market development we could grow by just selling vb in another state or going to another country that's no longer that easy because people are looking for hyper local products that are either made by a local craft brewer in our industry or maybe a local organic producer. And so that's really impacting our business because we can't just go big across all regions personalization at scale. So, we talk about scale efficiencies. Well, how do you balance that against the fact that consumers all want their own thing? They want products personalized. That actually really impacts your ability to to drive scale across your business. And then you've got disruptors across almost every part of our business, which is really impacting our, our ability to consolidate and build that scale more and more. Now... You might ask, how does that impact analytics? Well, there's a few ways that that's actually playing out. So trend analysis. So L'Oreal, for example, do a lot of social listening to understand what colors consumers want in terms of building out their makeup range. They try to stay ahead of the curve using analytics to build their innovation pipeline, as opposed to just building the product, putting it out in the market and testing to see if it works. New channels, price optimization. You've no longer got one retailer. You can just set a price and forget. You've got to manage pricing that's almost dynamic in a world where you've got players like Amazon constantly impacting your price across the market. Consumers now have transparency, almost full transparency of price um, across all categories. hyper So this is a real trend for the the major retailers. Coles and Woolworths are both now trying to move their model to being more localised, customer-led ranging suitable to the demographics in in those areas. So the way that that plays out for us is we need to understand the demographic draws for a particular store, like say a Liquorland in in Richmond is going to have different range to a liquor land in in Greensboro or out in the the eastern suburbs. So we need to have tailored ranging to meet those needs. Personalization at scale, well, that's frankly just about consumer targeting. Now, that can be one-to-one, it can be one-to-many, but these are things that our companies are now starting to do more rather than just put big ads on TV or on radio, which we traditionally did. That's just wasted money these days. And finally, new partnership models. So think of the new partnership models doesn't necessarily mean M&A, by the way. If you think about data as, as one of the key assets for our company, it could be sharing of data like Quantium is a very powerful company by virtue of the Quantium is a JV that's half owned by by Woolworths. And it's effectively, it's a consulting company that does analytics for third parties, but also shares data available through the Woolworths network. Those types of partnerships are very important for our businesses. And in fact, Stephen's going to talk a little bit about how Mondelez partner with Quantium to drive growth in their business. How am I going for time, by the way? I'm probably rambling on. I'll, I'll try to speed it up. One thing to note about FMCG is that we're not just about big brands. We are. We sit at the intersection of many cross-functional parts of our business that you can actually drive benefit in. So whether it's manufacturing, whether it's logistics, it's actually the point of connection for consumers. It's finance and revenue management. I mean, you're running big P&Ls. Um, there's lots of money running through these companies, a lot of cash that you can be optimising. And accordingly, there's use cases that sit across all these areas. Now, one of the things that our company's been Trying to sort of solve is, well, what are those use cases? So, like, the opportunities are endless. And when you're just starting up, we're not like financial services or technology companies. Data and analytics hasn't been at the core of our company for 20 years. We are starting this up now. So, where do you start? So, what you really look at is you look at the value you can drive and the feasibility. Now, that can sit across different parts of your company. It can be in the revenue areas, driving new growth. So we've, we've got examples of optimizing your promotional spend. So how do you actually drive promos into the market and do that in an optimized way versus just running $10 off of a case of EB every, every three months and hoping that it works. Customer segmentation, I mentioned understanding the demographic draw of the stores that we sell our products in, something we just frankly didn't understand 5, 10 years ago. And now we're using not just that understanding, but actually driving it into the ranging we have with with our customers. And then marketing mix and, and return on investment. So as I said, 10 years ago, putting a big ad on TV for VB or Carlton Draft was very easy. We're no longer doing that. We're trying to understand how do you better access consumers in an effective way through your advertising. But you can also drive benefits through costs. So... You think about inventory forecasting. For all of our companies, we've got a lot of stock moving through our company and there's a lot of wastage if you don't run that effectively. And that's a very big opportunity for almost every FMCG company in the world. Dynamic delivery routing. So again, in a world where you're starting to deliver in a more uh, nimble way, smaller deliveries to consumers as they need it within 30 minutes versus delivering to a Woolworths pallet loads of stock, that's going to be a real opportunity and it's something that we're actually exploring at the moment. Predictive maintenance. So you think about like all of our manufacturing sites, we spend millions of dollars on maintenance every year and we do it in a reactive way. When something breaks, we go in and we try to fix it. There are many businesses out there and there's a lot of technology and there are a lot of approaches to actually start to adopt predictive approaches to maintenance now if you look at that kind of that list we we then sort of say okay well how do you drive adoption in in the business of analytics so we started to go kind of like what are the early wins what are the ones that are very easy to implement but are going to drive big value in the company and so you start to land on these areas that that you want to be attacking first but then potentially making big bets in the harder to implement but really high value areas as well i've been zooming through this any questions so far? (laughs) Oh, <laughs> I might limit it to a couple. the value
2: of uh, here so low?
1: because I was doing this in the back of a car and, um, and I was trying to put the circle. No, no, frankly, like if I think about um, the amount of dollars we spend on predictive maintenance per year, like you're talking in the single digits, double digit million figures, if I think about how many, we spend almost a billion dollars in our sort of discounts line of our P&L. How do you optimize that spend in a way that's a, that's a much bigger number? And so while predictive maintenance is going to drive value, how do you actually optimize the bigger value areas? So uh, for someone like CUV, like yep. retailers, the so
2: how do you know about data
1: what It's really hard. So, this goes to my point about new like new partnerships because, I mean, all the retailers are putting up sort of wall gardens around their own data. So how do you start to understand their own consumers in a way that can drive value? Now, Woolworths and Coles, for example, they have flybys and everyday rewards. They've got their own internal analytics platforms. They may not be so willing to partner with you, but they're not the only sources of data in the market. There's a lot of other people in the market who sell products to consumers who may not have that capability that you can be looking to partner with to understand that consumer draw, but it's a very, very. good question and one we frankly haven't been able to solve perfectly. And all of our companies are facing the same problem because of the way how dominant the retailers are and how they own that point of connection. Now, I mean, if you look at Woolworths, they're very clearly pivoting their model to benefit that core competitive advantage. Look at what Brad Banducci is doing at Woolworths is he's shifting a model from we are a retailer and we make money from goods and services to one that is a platform-based business that they're monetizing many other lines in their business. So a few weeks ago, they launched a, a business which is basically selling in-store media, billboards, electronic billboard space to companies like ours. They've monetized a new revenue stream they didn't have two years ago. Quantium, they're selling data through Quantium. So like, there's many ways that they're trying to do this to leverage that consumer connection point, which is the critical asset that we're all trying to understand. I might just, I'll take questions at the end. So I wanted to talk a little bit about like what are our enablers of success. So six months ago when when our CEO said, Ryan, go set up our analytics capability. I was like, where the hell do you start? And what like, what are the things that we've learned along the way that have enabled us to succeed? What are the things that we're still sort of learning on? So I wanted to share three things that kind of my learnings and, and what I think we've done well and what I think we're still focusing on. So the first thing is to be very Choiceful. Now, um, my responsibility is to be responsible for all of the strategy of CUB. We deliberately put our team in the strategy team. So we are working on the biggest, highest priority projects. Our team isn't hidden in a finance function or another function in the business. It is central and we work on the most prioritized projects we can. So that's the first thing. We're also very choiceful. So we're not trying to do 15, 20 things. We're doing two or three things bigger and better than what we otherwise would by spreading our resource. So that's the kind of the first big learning. The second thing is making sure that what we're working on is business-led. Now, I've only been in the industry, the, the analytics industry, I'll call it, for six to eight months. And there are so many like options out there. You've got third-party outfits selling you technology, software, claiming the world. You don't want to be led by tech. You need to be led by proper Business problems? What is the problem you're trying to solve? And that needs to be business led. It can't be led by some analytics function sitting in a business. You need to be partnering with the people in the business that are actually driving the outcome and then partnering with them to deliver that outcome and potentially in a way that's enabled by tech, but not being tech led. And then finally, you need to operationalize this stuff. So it's all well and good to have a team which is working on fancy engines and coming up with great PowerPoint recommendations, but unless you actually operationalize those engines and you actually have them built into the business rhythms they're useless and so Dane's going to talk a little bit about one project now that we've implemented here in record pace he led that's actually been fully operationalized so it's actually in the rhythms we're already generating benefits and it's going to be um, that's only going to continue so I might actually at that point hand over to to Dane first uh,
3: Ryan's comments, I think this is an area where families have one left to vote against the the budget provide here. Especially when we uh are... sorry. Just one second. All good. Go for it. Mike on. All right. So it's just when we start to think about some of the things that Ryan meant, particularly personalization at scale and the the benefits that, that can have. And personalization at scale is kind of becoming something that not just like adds, adds value to us, but our shoppers are kind of expecting that on the e-commerce platforms that you're using. So it's not just about value driving, but actually giving our, our customers what they want. The, one of the products that we did in this personalization at scale kind of region was a product recommendation system. This makes a lot of sense in our business. We've got a very mature e-commerce platform. 90% of our orders actually go. Through the website itself, and it makes a lot of sense as a business. And as I was saying, it's something the customers are starting to expect when they go onto e-commerce platforms that you want to have recommendations. And recommendations are kind of one of those expected products now on e-commerce platforms. So just on the left here is essentially this is what the recommendation system looks like. When the customers go onto the website on the home page, they see this component at the top there. So the recommendation system essentially provides three different recommendations. And these three recommendations come from three different algorithms. An a priori algorithm is on the far left, the popular edition one. There's a hot right now that runs off a customer clustering model. And there's the CUB spotlight one, which is based off business rules. So I use the term algorithm a little bit loosely here because it's actually not an algorithm at all. Before I go a little bit more of a deep dive on the first two algorithms, let me just touch on what the CUB spotlight one is. When we had a discussion about this project with the business, it came back from then that it kind of makes sense to have a non-algorithmic recommendations in there along with the algorithmic ones as well. So when I say non-algorithmic, essentially what this CB Spotlight one is new product development, so we want to bring to the attention of all of our customers and also products that our our customers have had a verbal conversation with, the BDEs when they've gone in store. So that's essentially what this is. It's quite simple and quite simple in itself, but actually makes a lot of sense in our business. I think it's one of these examples where data science solutions kind of need to marry quite well with existing business processes and not just give all little answer, but actually doing something that, that marries well with what the business wants. So I'll, now, there you go, extra slide. So I'll talk about the a priori algorithm and the customer clustering in a second. So this is the a priori algorithm. This is a very, very common algorithm in all recommendation systems. Um, it's quite simple, but it's actually quite powerful in what it does. I suspect there's probably quite a few people here that are relatively familiar with this. The way this essentially works is it goes back through our customer transaction history and essentially looks for patterns of repeated buying behavior in terms of their products that co-occur in orders together. So to put that another way, it essentially tries to establish relationships between products that occur frequently together and then applies an association rule to kind of capture that relationship. So the slide here gives kind of a conceptual representation of what the algorithm is actually doing. On the bottom left hand side here is an example of one of the association rules that we would get out of it. This association rule is essentially saying, Products 43 and 601 are implying that you would be interested in product 618. In the interest of time, I won't go through what support and confidence mean. The important number here is lift. This is essentially what this number is, is how much more confident are we that the customer will be interested in product 618 given that they already have 43 and 601 in their basket and essentially does that by conditional probability. So the diagram explains this in in the sense that we're 23 times more likely that the customer will be interested in VB if they already have Colton Draft and Great Northern in their basket at the moment. So it's an example this works quite well in our business that the way that our products kind of work, that they often buy similar products together. So this is one of the reasons we actually chose the a priori algorithm here. The customer clustering model. So this is a multi-step kind of process and essentially starts with clustering our customers. This is a piece of work that one of our other data scientists, Megan, is doing in her own right. It's actually quite a large piece of work in itself. We're taking that and we're essentially applying it to our our work here because it makes sense to do so. We do k-means clustering on a bunch of different variables, things like the economic resource of the postcode that they're in, how much volume they're buying from us and all these sorts of things. And then we, we cluster using k-means clustering, but using gower distance. Gower distance essentially allows you to understand the distance between categorical variables. So it's quite difficult to understand the difference between a sports club and a restaurant from a mathematical perspective. And gower distance essentially kind of captures that and gives you that, that, um, that distance metric. The next step from that is essentially we look inside each cluster and we we say, okay, which products are selling well within within these clusters? And then we can turn around to our customers and say, hey, customers that we think are similar to you are having a lot of success with this product. Maybe it's it's something you will have success with as well. I think there's um, there's quite a strong story behind that as a recommendation. It resonates quite well with our customers that we're interested in, in customers that are similar to you. They're having success. Let's give you this. So in that sense as well, it's not just about the mathematics behind the form being able to sell it as a story to the customers. I, mean, I think that's really one that's quite powerful f- for us. I'll probably leave it leave it there. If anyone does have any questions about the recommendation engine or anything, I'll p- probably take a couple. So one of the
2: interesting things about doing product
4: recommendations yeah. is on the one hand you've got the question of will the customer buy this. Yeah. On the
3: other hand, there's the question of how much margin do you buy. Paul, is it a joint sort of thing? Or is it? Certainly do. Yeah, it's a good point actually. So what we do is we kind of ensure that, Where I make a high profit margin uh, product to some extent, there's always this inevitable balance between business priorities and what's mathematically truthful. So we've we've built it in a little bit. There's probably a little bit of a debate between the business people and the maths people there. But, you know, it is handled in in our algorithm at some stage. Yep. Have you played around at all with um, categorical
0: embeddings or also like public models for doing these dimensionality reduction and recommendation style approaches?
3: Not particularly, no. No, not at this stage. Yeah, yeah, cool. cool. Yeah, yeah. Two yeah. Doing all these things seems to be really great, but what has been the
2: outcome? You need a baseline, you probably need some yeah. you know, experimental design, test learning, yep, yep. something before launching, after
3: launch, as it is. Yeah, yeah, experiment. yeah. yeah. Yeah, so we're actually in the middle of an experiment at the moment. The way that we're evaluating this is actually quite a traditional method of evaluating recommendation systems. We've essentially got three different customer groups. So group A will receive no recommendations. They're kind of your pure control group. Group B receive random recommendations, so just random products. And group C receive the recommendation engine products. So what we see is B compared to A is what's the difference if we we offer them anything. C versus B is how much better are, are our products than random. So yeah, they're And that experiment is actually currently live at the moment.
1: One more question.
4: Simple one. What technology are you using to do this
3: analysis? In terms of what was the code written in? Yeah, so we used R for this, and it's productionized on a NIME server, but yeah, all the code's written in R.
1: Now, in the interest of time, we might pause it there on, on our presentation, pass over to Stephen for the next one, and then what we can do at the end is, is circle back in case
5: yep. there's any final questions for any of the speakers. But thank you, Dane. Uh, thanks very much, and a uh, big thank you to you all for having me here. I've just got to say off the bat, I didn't bring a data scientist with me, and I think the question that was asked here, I don't think I understood a single word you said. <laughs> so. I'm gonna set some expectations up front. You're not gonna see a very technical presentation from me. You might get a sense of how good my uh, Google Images skills are, but that's about it. The reason being, I don't come from a technical background. I come from what you might call an industry background. I started my career working in stores, in coal supermarkets, stacking shelves, worked my way through to head office, did some work in range and space analytics, I work sales, field operations, a whole lot of different roles there and and have been at Mondelez for a few years now doing category strategy and, and now working in revenue and pricing. So I figure rather than try and talk about some things that you understand better, I'll give you a view on the industry and some of the things that we see as the big opportunities. And then hopefully over the coming years, you'll be the people that help us figure that out in some way, shape or form. I think in order to to give you the right context in terms of what we're trying to achieve and what the major challenges are in getting there, it's really important that I do explain where we're coming from, particularly in some of the more mature categories and and retailers that I'm probably most familiar with. And those retailers would be Coles and Woolworths for the most part. So I'm going to start by going back a little bit in time to the times when I was in stores. And I'm going to maintain it wasn't that long ago. The fact that it's a buy low store doesn't help because they don't exist anymore. But I will tell you, it's less than 20 years ago. And there was a computer that looks kind of like that in the back office. And at the end of every one of my shifts, I would actually have to walk into that office. I'd have to open a tower at the side of the computer. I'd pull out this big, chunky data tape that would say Thursday on it, and I'd put it on the shelf. And I'd take out the one that said Friday, and I'd put it in. And at the end of the week, we'd put all that in a bag and we'd ship it off to head office. And that's how we collected point of sale data at the time. So fair to say we weren't coming from a very uh, sophisticated or very agile position in terms of data and analytics at that point in time. And it's not that long ago. So some good news in that was that at that time, we used to be very, very close to the consumer when we're in stores. If someone walked in and said to me, hey, I can buy this other variety of biscuits down the road at the other store and I can't get it here. And that upsets me. I could walk into that lovely computer. I could print a ticket, cut it into the shelf and and I could order it within a week. I'd have it great ability to respond directly to my consumers. But there's a few uh, efficiency gaps in that. So I had no idea if the product I was taking out was actually selling more than the product I was putting in. I had no idea if I was getting to a net benefit. By doing that, I was just responding to whoever was complaining. And I was doing that on a regular basis right across the store, making all sorts of changes. And there was a lot of me's doing that across a thousand odd stores. So you can imagine, efficiency is just out the window at that point in time, and it's still a challenge. Actually, a lot of our independent retailers still struggle with this today because stores can make their own decisions around these things. But if I use the biscuits analogy, you know, you'd have a section that might hold 300 products in a in a 10 bay section, and we're probably carrying 2,000 odd products within our warehouse to cater to that. We had no way of measuring if there was any tangible benefit in those extra products. So since that time, there has been a huge, huge focus by these big corporate retailers to shift to a centralized model. Uh, You're talking hundreds of millions of dollars spent over many, many years on systems, capability, resources, supply chain resets, all sorts of things to be able to move to this model. But the key thing, and in my belief, the key thing that has actually enabled them to do that is data and analytics. Getting better at data and analytics has been the key enabler of all that. And just in its simplest form, you talk to a model that I'm sure you're all familiar with in some way, shape, or form. But if you start at the top there with a range assortment, you work on the basis that I'm going to pick those 300 products for biscuits, and I'm going to pick the best 300 products that are going to deliver me the best return across my entire network, and I can get rid of the other 1,700. I'm instantly getting to a more efficient business. I'm instantly getting a better return on that real estate that I've got out there in the market. Theoretically, if I can then get the stores to actually execute that in a consistent way over a period of time, my data is going to get better. I'm starting to get better at understanding when I'm going to need the stock, how much of it I'm going to need, what's the impact of promotions. I can move into things like perpetual inventory, automated ordering. There's a real flow on effect in terms of my ability to forecast and manage stock. I can then move to cost savings. If I don't need to carry as many products, I need less stock of the products, I could have smaller DCs, I could have less stock on the road, I could have less staff in stores to actually fill that stock because I don't have to fill it as regularly. And then I can invest all of that money that I save and then I can get out of suppliers by getting scale out of them and I can put it back into price. I can put it back into customer service, store fit out, And then ideally I'd be working those 300 SKUs even harder and I'm getting more return. And I can't understate how good The big businesses in FMCG in Australia have gotten at this process. Like I said, hundreds of millions of dollars have gone into this, so you can imagine what they're getting out of it. $50 billion businesses, driving efficiency is a really big, big business in Australia. And it's important in this uh, sense because I can tell you a lot of times I've been to visit a Coles or a Woolworths with a great piece of data that says, hey, if you just merchandise this product in this way, your shoppers will prefer that and they will buy more. And they agree with that. They buy into that. But it won't happen because just to get the staff to fill that shelf that way is such a detriment to their efficiency. They can't do it. They can't deliver the growth because the offset and the decline in efficiency is so big. So it is a, it is an important context to set in terms of our ability to unlock consumer growth moving forward. But it's not to say that, uh, that we don't think about consumers and, and think about them a lot. This is what we call the Mondelez growth wheel. You can see in the middle there it says consumer centric. For most branded manufacturers within the FMCG space, the model, if I distill it down to its most basic level, is going to be I need to create brands, products, and offers that consumers want. I need to create that demand. I need to sell more and more of my products. That'll help me uh, be a great partner for those retailers out there, and I'll continue to win market share. That's the basic model. Thankfully, like I said, working at Mondelez, this is at the heart of what we do. And there was a question before around how do you get data? And I think Ryan said it's, a, it's really hard to get data. I'm going to upset you here. Not for me. <laughs> All right. I'm in a very, very fortunate position. So, and the two things that enable that is one, I've got leadership within my business that genuinely believe in the power of data and analytics and understanding the consumer and what that unlocks. So, we spend a lot of money, a lot of time and a lot of resource trying to understand those things and and how they relate to our market and our ability to win in that market. And two, we've spent a lot of years trying to build a really, really strong relationship with the biggest retailers in this country. And I think the last few years in a row, they've rated us number one across Coles and Woolworths. And so, we are seen as a partner We get a lot of access, so in a very, very privileged position, but we get loyalty data, scan data. We work on with shopper panels. We work with companies like Advantage and Shopper Intelligence that do a whole lot of benchmarking research across the market. We have software like JDA that's all space planning and range assortment software that we get our team to turn those insights into an actionable plan. We'd spend a lot of time on this. And I think Ryan touched on a few of the points around you know personalization, the power of the consumer at the moment. This is not going away. This is only going to get more and more important in the future of our business and, and most FM MCG businesses. Things are, are heating up in this space in the sense that consumers are demanding to have an offer that's tailored to them, and they expect nothing less. The good news is we have the data to be able to understand for a particular shopper what they've purchased in a particular store on a particular day in a particular hour, and thankfully, because of all the, the surrounding data, things like consumer mission studies and shopper mission studies, we can actually have a pretty good stab at at why and how they made that purchase, which is quite powerful to be able to understand that uh, when you're in a planning process. There is a big challenge here and it comes back to that efficiency piece. For all those inland states we might be able to find, and we do some great projects on clustering and um, localization with Coles and Woolies, the reality is probably 80 to 90% of the work we do with them is done at a market level. Indexes, et cetera, at a total Australian market level, which is still a great piece of work. But you, when you're talking across, I mean, for our business, we work in a $2 billion category. The averages are going to be pretty far out of whack from the the, uh, the extreme edges. So that's a challenge for us. And I'll circle back around to that challenge in a moment, but. Just to give you another sense of how difficult that is to deal with for us, because we have all of that data, we do have great data, there is a mountain of variables that goes into any piece of planning we do. This is just a handful of them. Any one of those variables included, excluded, given a different weighting, spits out a completely different result. Some of them are inputs, some of them are outputs, so it gets very, very messy when we start working through these scenarios. And just to give you a sense of the shift it can create, I'll give you one example from our current work on promotional optimization. And to give you context on why this is important, again, I work in what we call impulse categories. I don't know if anyone knows that term, but the idea is it's chocolate. There's a lot of impulsive purchase. If I can put it in front of you at a good price, in a Coles and Woolworths, a good price drives the activation. We get a lot of stock on floor and we sell a lot. Just, it's, you're all suckers, I'm sorry to tell you, but... <laughs> We give you some price and a bit of chocolate in front of you, you'll buy it, right? So promotions have been the traditional driver of sales within that environment. And it's a competitive environment. If our competitors get more promotional slots than us, we lose share. That's traditionally been the way to do it. So we do a lot of work on cross-price elasticity, Uh, whether you're talking two pack groups within the same segment, so two different sizes of blocks or chocolate blocks versus chocolate bars, or you might be talking across different categories and start talking about chocolate block. We actually look at all of the various data points we have across promotions and understand the different combinations of those promotions at different price points and what it does to the uplift on those promotions. Hopefully that's a nice simple explanation. Like I said, I don't do technical speak. I apologize. But we've been doing that work for a lot of years and I've got a lot of smart people in my team that are very, very good at that. We also do thing called shopper profiling. Very simple. All the shopper metrics, you overlay them and you try and find distinct shopper groups with distinct behavior within that group. So you might overlay life stage with affluence and run that over our old gold chocolate brand. You find that everyone who buys it is over 60 and we haven't recruited a new person into the brand for about 10 years and they all shop premium, right? They're not that fussed about price. They just want to be able to get their old gold chocolate and then they're happy. Versus in mainstream brands, they will switch between brands and sizes and they'll do everything they can if you just give them that price I was talking about before. So we do that across all the brands, all the different segments, and we start to define these distinct shopper groups. And we know that if we give them a certain offer at a certain price on a given week, we can pretty much win across those shopper groups. And uh, I see a couple of the Quantum boys at the back there. They've been uh, helping us a lot with this type of work. But they, and, and again, a couple of those smart people I mentioned in my team, started overlaying those two pieces of work. And a few years ago, we did that for the first, which is that once you start to remove the weeks where you've doubled down on particular customers, and you start to add in the weeks where you weren't catering to a particular customer, we needed a lot less promotions. So for the first time in any time I can remember, we went to our retailers and we said, actually, take a whole heap of our promotions out because we think we can save a lot of money on our trade spend. We can actually improve your margins and your profit a whole lot. And you're actually going to get a better offer for the shopper because they're going to get a more consistent offer at a better value and they're going to get it every week. Thankfully, they believed us. They didn't just give all the promotional slots to our competitors, which was good. And we did. We grew. We actually grew in that year that we did that with more than 10% of our promotional program removed. So that overlay of the different variables is, is incredibly important. And I mentioned Quantium and and Ash is in the room here and he gave me a killer fact that I'm going to steal with pride here today that just to give you an idea on the complexity we're dealing with just in that level, and if I get this wrong, Ash, tell me, the number of different chess games you could play, the number of variances is a number with 50 digits in it. The number of atoms in the universe is a number with 80 digits in it. And If we take a look at our 52-week calendar for candy. Just one segment within one of our categories for one retailer. Just looking at depth and frequency, I believe. So just time and depth of none of those other variables. That number has 141 digits. So where smart people like Ash come in is helping us model those scenarios. I've got probably five people in my team that just do scenario modeling on pricing. That's all they do. And... Like I said, it is incredibly hard for them to do that. So we need automation. We need artificial intelligence, whatever else you can bring us to try and work through this and find out of those millions of scenarios, which is the one we should actually implement. Because as a billion-dollar business ourselves in chocolate, just getting that right is worth tens of millions of dollars to us. So that's where we're at now. Now, you could argue that I could then throw in all of the different segments. I could throw in all of the different retailers, all of the different variables that we talked about before, and it gets a whole lot bigger. But I think this is the challenge that is the next one for us to tackle. So we're already tackling that previous opportunity now. But the reality is that even if we work through those millions of scenarios and come up with the most optimal one, it's only the most optimal at a market level. I could walk into any Coles or Woolworth store after we've implemented that. And if we'll do that same work at that individual store, we'd find a whole lot of changes to make and a whole lot of ways to make it better. But we are, like I said before, we're a geographically large and sparsely populated market and efficiency is a huge factor for us and for our retailers. So we haven't unlocked that yet. They are heading that way. If you see all the different formats they've got in market now to try and tailor the offer to different ways, they are trying to figure this out as well. I mentioned JDA before. Woolworths just spent $30 million last year implementing a new system that helps with clustering and range assortment and localization. Yeah, this is what everyone's trying to figure out. And there's, there's two real ways that in my mind that we need to crack this. The first is if we can actually do localization and use data and analytics to extract enough value out of those opportunities at a store level, then maybe you start to offset the efficiency deficits that would come from implementing those. So I think that would be the logical next step from the work we're doing now. But ultimately, if I was to talk about a potential end game, it has to be an end-to-end solution. When I look across the the various parts of our business at the moment, whether it be tools to help us build the right strategy or efficiency in manufacturing, simplification of distribution and warehousing, we have tools that we use to do store formats, pricing, like I said, range assortments, and we have tools that tell us how many people we should have in the field executing all of this stuff. We have nothing that ties the decision making together across all of those things. So every time, you know, me and my category team want to suggest a new product that we need to bring to market because we think consumers will love it, I've got to go. A battle with the guy in manufacturing who's going to tell me that that product is going to ruin his efficiency and he's going to destroy his business and make him miss his target next year. He's a bit dramatic. But the same thing with if I know that to do a particular product in a new category, I'm going to need a whole lot of resource at a store level to execute that. And we might say, well, that's actually too expensive. But I haven't factored in that I might get a whole lot of efficiencies in the warehouse because I'm going to get a whole heap of scale that I haven't had before. We just don't do this at the moment. So I guess what the sort of end message for me is if we can find ways to use advanced data and analytics to, A, identify those consumer opportunities at a more local level and get us big businesses in FMCG on trend with the rest of the market and, and actually catering to consumers at that level, but do, do so in a way we don't lose the power of our size and our scale and, and our ability to bring those things to market, it's game-changing for us in MCG. And it's probably something we're all going to be chasing down over the next five to 10 years if all the people I'm talking to are anything to go by. So like I said, we would love your help with that. If anyone's got any ideas, you know my name and I think there was a LinkedIn thing to come out. And I'd love to hear ideas and I'd love to be talking about these topics. It's going to be a big part of my life for the next few years. So hopefully I get a chance to work with all of you on that. So thanks for listening. Question? I have a question in regards to the completely a huge amount of data that you've access to and talk about um, you know, being customer-centric and then possibility, and giving the
4: customer what they want. And I was wondering in regards to I hear it slightly controversial, but in regards to the
2: responsibility of maybe
4: rather than giving them what they want, actually, is there any action in regards to giving them what they need? In regards to absolutely, um, it's not necessarily just about giving them chocolate and candy, but actually using <laughs> analytics to kind of enrich the society in which we live in and.
2: That those 300 products you think about, not just being Oreos and Kit
5: Kats and Tintans, but actually being things that, might actually help you a bit more. yep, sure, got it. <laughs> One, I would say chocolate enriches your life a great deal, so I'll get that out there first. Two, I would say the biscuit category has a lot of great health and well-being products coming in, many of which coming from this great business. There's a lot of brands we manage that you don't know about. <laughs> Um, But it's actually, it's a great question because it's wrapped up in the problem we have. We are well aware of the health and well-being trends within the business. We're well aware of healthy snacking and it's a huge growth area within the business that we're not tapping into in a way we'd like to because our business is built on scale. And when you've got one of those big blocks, you know, Cadbury dairy milk block. (laughs) She just lost me there. Um, That block, I mean, you're talking to $500 million product. That's drive, that is the engine room of our business. So whilst we're built on efficiency, whilst we have to deliver profit, whilst we have to do all of those things, and we haven't been able to crack these smaller niche opportunities that are so popular within the market. I mean, go, go for a walk down the health and well-being aisle in, in a Coles or Woolies. You don't see a lot of big brands at the moment. People are looking for smaller brands, things that have popped up from a local brand, things that have meaning to them. That is the trend at the moment, and we're just not set up to do that. We're absolutely working on it. So say, for instance, in our business at the moment, we have a thing called the growth hub team of people who have been split out of the business so that they can work on those opportunities without being caught up in all the efficiency challenges. So I take the challenge on and uh, absolutely we recognize that and that's one of the things we need to we need to be doing more of.
4: talked about having a market level view hmm. and that's largely because the partners that you work with, that's what they
5: supply. I know we get store level data from them and we get uh, shopper data like down to basket level. So you get the transaction? Yep.
4: Cool, so what's, what's stopping you?
5: We do the level of analysis. I guess my point was it's very hard to then execute anything at that level. We've done a whole lot of work and a whole lot of trials, for instance, with both Coles and Woolworths on lower-level data, and we work in things like in Woolworths. You can work in, say, a metro network that they've got that's a very targeted demographic. We do a lot of that stuff. But the reality is most of the sales, most of the shoppers are coming through the other 900-odd stores, and most of the work we do in that space has to be executed in one plan, one market, without deviation. So it's a
4: process
5: well, like I said, it's it's an efficiency you can so trying to get the balance between those two things. And look, the category managers at oh, Coles and Woolworths are very much on, on the side of the consumer and the shopper as well. They want to be doing these things. It's very hard to justify doing something that's going to drive five million in benefit if it's going to hit you for twenty million on efficiency. Sure.
2: Tough. I'm going
5: to ask this question. Okay. How much data do you have on product placement in stores, and do you use that as a lever as opposed to price? Absolutely. And I guess the third question.
2: How important
5: is the gondola in for uh, upsell, uh, increased sales? Uh, okay, I'll, I'll try and be quick. <laughs> so I have a team within the business. They're called the point of buying team. So there's five of them. They use that JDA software. They interact directly with Coles and Woolworths, with all of the petrol and convenience customers, all of those guys that do space management. And we spend a lot of time talking about where products should be placed, uh, how they should be distributed, all of that sort of stuff. Very, very important in terms of there is a direct correlation between share of shelf and share of market. There's always an argument about chicken or the egg. Does the share of shelf drive the share of market or does the share of market drive the share of shelf? But either way, you have to do it. Second part of that was...
4: Oh, how much do you use it as a lever for driving
5: sales? Oh, sorry, and the gondola in question. Yes, so like I said, it is a huge lever of market share and, and if you can get positioned in the middle two shelves and you know, get yourself a good brand block or a promotional block, it, it is a huge driver of sales. The gondola in piece... Is somewhat complicated because of what I said. The visibility it drives a huge amount of sales. So when we get a gondola end, particularly if you get front end one and it's and it's supported by a catalogue, the uplift is in sort of in the multiples in terms of you know 300%, 400%, all of that sort of stuff. The interesting fact is when we do a whole lot of shopper research, 80% of the product is not bought from that gondola end; it's bought from the shelf. So it's almost like the gondola end acts as a beacon to shout out value, say, hey, you need to buy me. But then they go around to the shelf where they can get the full selection of products and choose the ones they want. people
4: want to buy
5: chocolate secret, yeah. secretly. Secretly? <coughs> sorry, I, should, I did shame you before. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> Have we got any more? Uh, maybe one more question. Sure. Sorry, I did say before. Now,
4: are you guys doing any work with respect to the independents? I mean, analytics and independence and understanding their market or Aldi for that matter. I understand Doopoli
6: is yeah. driven by movies, but you've still got a uh, share of business and that's great,
5: so Definitely. So, so indies uh, have their own challenges around, they haven't been able to manage that centralization piece. They're somewhere between a wholesaler and a retailer. So we try and work with them as a retailer as much as we can, but ultimately we then have to go out and deal with the store owner or the multi-site operator like a Richie's or a Drake's and deal with them and actually get something implemented. Funnily enough, at that level is where we get our most traction and data. Um, We've had some really good instances where a a Richie's or someone, again, if you build a good partnership, will actually hand over the the transaction data and let you play around in that and come up with a whole lot of insights. And and they're very quick to action because they are a bit more nimble and a bit more agile. So that's probably on the independent space. Someone like Aldi is a bit different. Interestingly, most of the category managers at Aldi rely on us for the data. So they don't get a whole lot of data. They get a little bit of pretty much a view of what happens internally. They don't participate in a whole lot of market data. So when they're trying to understand their category, they want us to come in and and tell them what we know. Which is a good position to be in, but at the same time, they don't necessarily do any other stuff we recommend. It's a very German model. It's uh, you will use this color of pen on this form, you will put this product here, and you won't move it over there. So we've spent a lot of time working up a great relationship with them and getting a lot of traction, but it's a slow road to get them to shift away from their core model. So
4: you're not shedding a lot of money to get the data from IRI, Nielsen, or. From what, sorry? You're not shedding a lot of money. Always. You get
5: that you're yeah, no, we Are spend a lot. <laughs> we get a relationship that allows us to spend all the money. Yes. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. Uh,
2: do you consider
5: uh, anonymous users or you just registered buyers? Uh, well, look, obviously through scan data, you pick up anonymous users, but when we're talking about shopper data, it's, it's usually the use of loyalty data or various pieces of research and then you just have to extrapolate it out across the market. So, we get some pretty big sample sizes though. I mean, in loyalty data, I think in 10 million, there you go. So, the Quantum guys can get access to 10 million unique shoppers through everyday rewards. You can extrapolate that out to 25 million in Australia pretty easily.
1: Okay, we might uh, hold it there. Um, so, thanks, Stephen. We'll hand over to Jordi and I'll let you steer the ship.
6: Yeah, no problem. Awesome. So, for everyone, I'm Jordan. Last but not least, so hopefully the beers haven't set in and, and we're kind of dozing off a little bit. But basically, I'm I'm here to talk a little bit about data analytics in promotional effectiveness. So some of the stuff here, I didn't know which order I'd be in, so it's been covered. I'll move quickly. So hopefully I'm a bit a bit longer of q and A Q&A at the end. So. I have recently started the strategy team at Kraft Heinz. So whereas Ryan's been doing it for six months, I've been doing it for about three weeks. That's kind of where we're at. So um, we're a little bit behind in terms of what we want to kind of launch, but data isn't an issue for us either. We have too much data, I would say, and we're not quite sure what to do with it sometimes. So that's one of the big struggles for us as a business is what's important, what's not important. Data is great if you use it the right way. So if we don't use it the right way and we make the wrong decisions, it can hurt us for the long run. So how do we get that right balance? And I think balance is the key word. How many of you seen this ticket on a shelf? I hope most of you because we're addicted to it. We love yellow tickets. We love them, right? I guarantee you could have a wall of yellow tickets and then right next to it, none of them, all at the same price, and you pick out something with a yellow ticket. We've been trained to look for these yellow tickets. They're everywhere. So our friends at Nielsen have done some work and analysis, and basically they're saying across the grocery business is about $11 billion wasted on promotions a year that would have been sold anyway. That's a lot of money. So how do we unlock that $11 billion? How do we peel that back and put that back in either consumer's pockets or or our pockets and make sure that we can drive the business forward, right? But that's a lot of money, a lot of money. So I'll kind of briefly touch, I'll skip through the introduction very quickly. Housekeeping for me is, I was talking to a few people before, my accent's very strange, I know that. I'm from the UK, I live in the US, and I've been here for four years. So you're gonna hear a lot of different things. It's not to keep you on your toes, it's just that I don't actually know where I'm from. Don't worry about it. So Craft Hands is a business, pretty large business overall, like the guy said. So $26 billion, that's US dollars in sales. Um, So relatively large size. So we have a little bit of expertise in what we do and we have a lot of brands, right? We're talking about consolidation of industry. We're probably notorious for that as, as well as ABI. We have a lot of different brands to play, some of these local, some global. But what this allows us to do is build on what we've been talking about today is that scale, right? And nimbleness is something that we need to work on as well. And that's where data, an- uh, data analytics is going to play such a huge part in the future of FMCG and especially in companies like ours that has historically a bit clunkier, a bit bigger, right? So our speed to market and to reaction is slower. So how do we become more powerful? How do we use your brilliant minds in this room to help drive us to the future, to compete with those smaller, more agile companies? So lots of different brands across the world. So been here for a long time, plan to be here for a lot longer, but if we don't adapt quickly, with the environment, we may not be. So that's where data is going to play a huge part for us moving forward. I won't spend too much time on, but why is it important for promotional analytics or analysis, right? You have two major retails, Cosmos, and they're traditional, what we call high-low discounters. You have a base price, you go up and down from that. Then you have kind of your independence. Then you have your oldies, which is your your basic discount model. So that's kind of why you almost have to start tailoring your strategies already because you have two different models. What's happening today is it's changing dramatically. We have some new friends coming to join us, right? So Amazon's going to change the way we think. Was in the U.S. Before this, I'm not sure how many people online shop today, but I guarantee that most of you will be in five to 10 years. Interact. In a supermarket, the way that you shop, the way that your your purchase behavior will change slowly but surely. I think Australia is a little bit behind the rest of the world, but it will get there. Trust me, we'll get there, and that's going to have a massive impact on on everyone in this room. But what Ryan does, what what Stephen does, what I do will change dramatically. And what does that mean for promotions? Everything. If I'm going to pick up a frozen meal in the store versus if I'm online at 12 o'clock at night, do I need to promote that product? Maybe not. So how can I then go into even more tailored and tailored is another word we use, right? Tailored promotional analysis. That's something we're not even close to that yet. But that is going to be huge. Right. What time of day are you shopping? Can I have pricing that's basically dynamic, right? Happens in airlines all the time. Flight was a thousand, next day it's two thousand. You could see the same thing happening in the FMCG world as well. Why can a price not be a dollar? Something that could happen in the future. Kaufland is uh, one of the big German, basically a hypermarket chain that's coming to Australia. Will definitely shake the the industry as well. So how do we navigate that landscape from a promotional uh, standpoint? And then online delivery. We know with Calpheline, what they do is they come with the big hypermarkets, then a deep discount, a smaller box model will come five years later, roughly speaking. How do you get prepared for that? Right? What's the right way to do it? And promotions is a key way for us to understand that if they don't want the promotional mechanic. So what do we do with that spend? It's spend that we're giving to a customer, to a retailer in some way, shape, or form. What's the right way to use that? Our tickets, I've put a picture of Kraft Mac and Cheese up here. Even we have it on half price. But what dictates that sticker going up? So many different points of data you would not believe. I think it was 150 plus digits on on Candy, for example, right? It's the same for us across such a broad portfolio. We're not lucky enough to be as much impulse as Mondelez, right? A lot of our, our purchases are planned, right? So how do we drive people into store to pick up those products? Is promotion the right way? Is it not? Those are the sorts of things that we have to understand, right? And all, oh, do we need the yellow ticket, right? That's the other thing. Where's the right place to spend? So I'll touch a little bit on that and kind of walk you through some sort of data points that we look at. And a high percent of sales on promo. So this is um, from Nielsen Home Scan Data. 38% of all products are sold on promotion in a supermarket. That's crazy. Right? It didn't always start that way. <laughs> that was a price on shelf. Companies have done it to themselves to try to compete with each other right, as we go. And then you've seen 38% sold. That's one of the highest in the world, by the way. I think New Zealand is the only developed country that sells more on promotions than Australia. So A and Z, killing it in the promotion game. Um, maybe it's great at the shelf, or maybe it's great for the retailers they are taking a lot of money, but for manufacturers, it's a real challenge. And that's where the squeeze is. So how do we manage that? What's the most effective use of that money for us? It's critical. It is huge. Just check the time so I can get some questions in. So I'll talk a little bit about efficiency and promo planning. We've talked about some of the data already. We have a lot. We have our our data. That's the easiest bit. I have tons of it. I know what I'm selling to the customer, right? But I don't know what price point consumers are buying. That's where my data kind of stops. Are they buying it at $1.50 or are they buying it full price? That's why I need what we call a syndicated data or, or data that we can purchase. That then lets me put that with my data that I've sold to the customer, then tie back in and say, okay, this is what I've actually sold on my promotion. I can put those two things together. It becomes a lot more powerful. Then we go a little bit further. What's our in-store data? So someone asked about Gondolens before, I think. We put something on the front or the back. If we put it on a wing, right? Can we get an eye What are all these sorts of things we can do in-store to drive incremental activities? There's spend attachment. Unfortunately, things don't sell them. Things don't come free from uh, our friends at Coles and Woolworths, right? I actually interview a lot of people. They haven't been part of the FMCG world. They think that Coles and Woolworths just these—they're doing you a huge favor. What a great price point! They're just giving it to me so kind of them. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> We're actually spending a lot of money on that promotion as well. So what are we going to do there? And then the last but not least is Shopper. So Stephen spent a lot of time on Shopper and I've, I've made this green. This for me is the one that's changing the most and will continue to change the most and dictate almost everything that we do. The top three have changed a little bit. Maybe it's on a different computer, but it's still relatively the same. Consumer purchases, it scans through, we get it back. But how the Shopper behaves and what sort of metrics we capture will change materially. Okay, And what we do with that data will drive so many changes in, in promotional analytics and how we promote, the way we think about promotions. So I want to take a step back and just, I'm not a data scientist either, okay? I just, everyone knows, I have a couple of my team in the room. So if you want to get technical, I'll bring them up, throw them under the bus. But I thought, let's take a step back and look at a couple of data points. So what I've done is I've created a a very simple 52-week promotional program with two price points. So a base price of $2 and a promotional price of $1. What you'll see is nothing on here is the same. You would think it's sold at $2, should sell 20,000 units. Sold at dollar, I sell 80,000 units. That's not how it works, right? So things are happening in the market that mean I have different volumes attached to each of these price points. What I want to do is optimize anything at this base price and anything at my promotional price. So where I see 92,000 units, that's amazing. That's great. I've got incremental uplifts, but why? I'm spending the same amount of money usually. So how can I get from 60,000 units up to 90,000 units every time, right? So how do I generate those uplifts and use my promo dollars the right way? So what can happen? So I have three different price points at a dollar, things like execution. These numbers are made up, so don't worry. But I can tell you, for example, we talked about a front end. A can of baked beans, for example, can generate up in uplifts of a thousand percent just by being on the front end. Okay. And we know we have high incrementality on promotion. That's amazing for us. So there's massive uplifts you can get from that. Other products, not so much. They would sell doesn't matter where. Maybe I'm just taking my stock actually off the shelf, which sometimes we, I don't sell anything on shelf, I don't sell anything on the front. But what we can do is use data to help us drive into this. My data, but also customer data and our in-store. So we have teams in the stores as well. They're able to pick up these metrics. So where are we off-located? What are we doing? So if I'm at the front, front end two, front end three versus the back of the store, what does that mean for me? So this is super powerful for us because then what I can do is go to the retailer as well. Hey, this unlocks X amount of dollars for you. Certain amount for me, it's a win-win, right? And it's great for the consumers because you love to buy at a dollar versus two. Let's be honest. If you don't have to pay for price, you won't. I hope you do, but you probably won't. So these are some of the things that we can look at. That's just one example of uplifts on base about putting things in different stores on one product. <laughs> we have thousands of products. What else could change? Well, I have the same products that are selling Coles and Walsh. I have competitors that are selling in Coles and Walsh, right? So just because I have that same promotion, it could be clashing with another retailer. So I could be losing 30% of my uplift just from something like that. So data is exactly the thing that I need to tell me that. Don't do this. So by just moving a week or two weeks over, I could unlock 30, 40,000 units more for me as a manufacturer, but that's not benefiting me only, it's benefiting the retailer as well. That's not lost sales. So creating this sort of win-win is key for us in in promotions as well. We wanna win, of course, but when you have a duopoly, you need your customer to win as well, right? So how can we work through some of these dynamics? What else do we see? We can get shopper data as well. Is that promotion incremental or not? So will they buy it anyway? If they're gonna buy the product anyway, it's inelastic, I shouldn't be promoting. But if they are and it drives incrementality, it drives consumption, then probably want to be looking at promotions and what's the most effective way to do that. So another way to bring that data to life. One of the things we sell salt, sacks of Salt. If I sell sacks of Salt in a grinder that's $5 for a dollar, you're going to buy a couple and you're not going to come back for two years. That's not good for us, <laughs> not good for the category or the retailer. Great for you because you have salt forever, but not good for me and not good for my customers, right? But but we can actually understand what drives that consumption. We can put that together, right? And th- there's a cost as- associated with that. There's a benefit. So how do we get that right balance? What's the right balance for us? Is that a question? What's your
2: sample size with, you know, would have bought more than usual, only got a full
6: it will depend on the products, essentially. For this one, I honestly couldn't tell you.
1: Just in general,
6: I mean, say so you have hundred thousand sales. That's a good question. Shop yeah. yeah. Sample size on that. Shopper,
2: you have been in the tens of thousands. On yeah. Intelligence. So they do a lot of uh, exit surveys through stores. And they do it across the industry, across yep. retailers, and um, pretty
6: much do it right throughout the year. What's the percentage for total consumers? Oh, it'd be in the teens yeah in teens? probably in the teens yeah yeah probably around there so we do extrapolate right it's not like you your loyalty data where you've got 10 to 25 we do have to take assumptions at, at some point generally speaking it's even if you're looking at focus groups etc we do extrapolate things out we have to because we can't go to every beans customer for example sorry
2: yeah
6: yeah, yeah no, 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 come, go ahead they are doing a lot of stuff now
2: with online communities as well so they sign up people who Scanning kind type of setup every week, they do their shop and then they go and answer a whole bunch of questions online. It's almost a, a weekly interaction with those shoppers rather than just a one um, exit survey. And then you can see trends over time. And, and how representative of the online surveys are they of the offline? Purposes?
6: So, one of the other things, once we have a lot of these little bits of data, right, we can start to aggregate them together right? So then we can start looking at elasticities. So I assume for most of us, we know elasticities, right? But basically from a volume, quantity sold or supplied, what is the coefficient, right? So like I said, absolute within the ones inelastic, probably don't want to be promoting. The higher my elasticity, the more I'm promoting potentially. So how do we then start to aggregate the data back and bring that all together to start making informed decisions? And that's key for us. So there's a lot of these different levers. There's thousands of different things that can change. And all of this data, right? We can bring in, we can make fancy dashboards, right? We have your tableaus, we have whatever you want. It allows us to drill down, right? It's really important because we're looking at thousands of products, thousands of different scenarios, right? So it's really important that we can aggregate that data back to help us make decisions, informed decisions. It assumes one key thing, consumers are rational. They are not. I'll have you believe they are not rational. The data is, the consumers aren't. Like I said before, you'll be looking at two products the same, one's got a yellow ticket, one doesn't. Same price point, you're probably gonna pick up the yellow one, makes absolutely no sense. Actually, it could be 10 cents more expensive, but you see the yellow and you go, that that looks good. That's not rational. (laughs) That's not rational at all, but you will. Trust me. And you're gonna to go to Carlson Wilson this week and you got to look at these yellow tickets and you really start thinking about it. But that's the sort of thing that we've been trained to look for is a yellow ticket or a red ticket. Down, down. Prices are down, you've heard it. Red ticket. That's gotta be a great price. Some of this price has been there since 15, 16, or the retail price. We don't think that way. We're not rational. We like to think we are, but we're not. So data's great. I can understand the shopper, I can understand the market, I can make informed decisions, right? But the art needs to meet the science especially in promotional analysis, it has to meet the science, right? There's a balance there. It's not the means to the ends. I've got two bottles of Coke here. I think Stephen was at Coca-Cola, right? Got a 600 ml bottle of Coke and a 1.25 liter. Your assumption would be probably a little bit, almost close to double the price for the 1.25 liter bottle of Coke. Went on Woolies last night, 600 ml bottle of Coke is $3.70. 1.25 liter is 3.15. We have biases as consumers. There's different utility for different products. All of these things come into play, but it makes no sense, right? It makes no sense. But to some consumers, it does. I don't want to walk around with a 1.25 liter or a 2 liter it around as I walk around, right? So you're paying for that. But a lot of data allowed Coke, and Coke's best in class when it comes to this, in like pack price architecture, et cetera, are doing these sort of things. So what do, what do we want? What's the sweet spot for us is what we call the triple win. I want to win as a supplier and manufacturer. I want the customer to win. That Obviously, that makes them happy. But I want the consumer to win. At the end of the day, I'm a consumer goods company. I'm here to make consumers happy. I need to bring the customers along on the journey, but I'm here to make you happy. That sweet spot is very small in the middle. It's very difficult to do because that bottle of Coke or that bottle of golden circle juice means something different to you and to you and to you and to you. That's what I want to do. That's how I maximize my promotional spend. That's very difficult. Like Stephen said, we aggregate really well. We bring everything up to a national level. We're great at it. We're great. We have a product that we sell, the nectar, mango nectar juice. We see these weird spikes happen a couple of times. We're like, what is going on? And it's in certain places in the country. It's tied to a holiday, a religious holiday. So do you promote during that week in that certain part of that country? What do you do? right? And the more you dig into the day, the more nuances you find. But that becomes very difficult to execute. How do I put one price point in a store in Dandenong and have a different one in South Melbourne? Neither do. And right now, it's probably not going to happen, especially not in the store. So what are some of the things that I think are going to happen next? So enhanced solutions. So we have trade planning, what we call management solutions, starting to see a lot of companies switching to what we call these optimization solutions. So they're starting to give you more of that predictive analytics as we go forward. Hey, you ran this promotion, you got an uplift of 100%. You ran the same promotion, you got an uplift of 500. It will start to flag those things to you. Okay, you've got three upcoming. What are you going to do? Has a massive knock-on effect for us, not only in where do we invest the dollars, what does that mean for my supply chain, right? Do I have enough stock? All these things start to come full circle, right? If I don't have stock, I can't promote. So it starts this sort of, this big chain of events, right? And, and that's purely from promotional analysis. Dynamic pricing. So it will happen. I don't know when, but I guarantee you that we start to see this at FMCG more and more. Online is probably the best way that will be able to happen. We're still kind of looking at weeks when we promote. So the price point will be there Wednesday to Tuesday. So what about daily price points? Online, I've got a hot day. I've got a hot deal. I've got a Kraft Heinz day. This Sunday, you can get the hottest deals. And that's it, one day. We don't think in that, that way, but this hour. That's traditionally not something that that is kind of these big box manufacturers, if you want to call us, we, we've been able to do or implement. That's a big opportunity for us. When's the right time to do it? How much money do we invest? What's the right price point to do that? And then last but not least, this kind of digitization of consumer spend. The digital path to purchase is going to change dramatically. Like I said before, we'll shop online. I'm telling you, it's going to happen. It will become more prominent. It will become more ingrained in the culture. All stores will change. You have Amazon Go in the US. I'm not sure if any of you are familiar. There's no checkouts. You walk out and that's it. You just pick it and you go. Things will change. But how do we capture that data is going to be really, really difficult. We have a lot of data today and we're working with two retailers. How do I work with multiple retailers now? And now I'm working out of people's homes. I need to understand all your buying patterns, all your buying behaviors, and how I promote towards that. It's going to be incredibly difficult. A big challenge, exciting challenge. Can't wait. But really, really difficult. So we're going to need much smarter people, much smarter than myself, much smarter solutions right? that work harder. Probably a bit of luck, to be honest. And those are kind of the, the things that I think that Interstrap does a lot in the, uh, the upcoming days, right? Really, really looking forward to it. I think there's a lot of change that's going to happen in the Australian market, even just seeing some of the new retailers that are going to come in the next few years, but even that change to online purchasing, right? It's almost like your phone's listening to you sometimes. You'll be talking about a donut, and then before you know it, you've got a donut ad. It's going to happen. We're going to do the same thing with promotions. We're going to do the same thing. We're going to target, right? Just like CB is doing in the beer world, probably not quite there in terms of where we are. It's kind of a food company, let's say, but it will happen. We notice you like Twinkies. Now here's Kit Kats. Here's this. Here's that. That change will happen. So how do we tailor our programs towards consumers? It'll be really, really important. That's what I have for you. Questions. So I think uh, you talked a lot about the data you are collecting. Yeah. Like the, you know, scanner data, surveys, things like that. Um, yeah. How open are your customers to doing in-store experiments and, and actually collecting data around cause and effect? Yeah, I think it depends. We buy a lot of syndicated data, for so third-party data, right? Depends on relationship. So certain Areas where we're the category leader, so beans, we want to trial something, they'll give us a couple of stores. Okay, we want to mock this planogram, we want to try these price points, they'll let us have it. Where I'm a fourth player, let's say tuna, probably not so much. So a lot of it depends on what's kind of, right? So they will partner with you, but they need to see the value as well. If it's a win for them and you, you show them that this could be a big jump for you, they will. They'll go for it, case by case basis. Did you have, yeah? Yeah.
4: So I can't remember when, but a while back it became mandatory for you to have the price per unit displayed. Yeah. So of two questions related to that is, did you notice a big difference in consumer spending as a response to that? And were tickets are a solution that was offered to combat that?
6: Anyone else jump into that? From my perspective, I feel like consumers don't actually look at that as much as you think they do because that rational behavior isn't always there, right? They see the yellow ticket, they don't actually care what the price per tonne is. We're looking at, at our metrics on revenue per tonne. We always look at that. They're not really looking at it that much, right? If that's the product they want at that price, they're going to buy it. Right, for the most part, some consumers, they will. For the most part, I don't think it's changed all that much.
4: Accuracy, do you know what percentage of your users are making informed
6: decisions? I actually don't know. Yeah. Um, I'd be speculating. I'm not sure if you have any knowledge on who number of people looking at the <laughs> you, 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 price per kilo. Yeah. Yeah. So we,
2: we get a lot of
6: data on that. And yeah. generally, the
2: buy uh, more of an impulse drive, price, display, use, uh, a whole lot of things in the yeah.
6: right. So we understand it to that level. I don't, I don't price per kilo, I don't think because it could be positioning on shelf. It could be there's another brand next to you that I didn't realize was there, I'm going to try that. There's so many things that can affect your decision at shelf that that's where online is going to be really important. You don't actually have all those choices anymore. You just see them in a list. So whereas maybe that's where it actually plays into the brand's advantage. Actually I know this tomato sauce, right, so that's the one I'm going to buy. Maybe I don't experiment as much because I don't see those tickets on the peripheral, right. It may change that behavior. That's something that, that we're going to a- end up finding out in the next 5, 10 years.
4: Yeah, it's always interesting to me because uh, I, I buy my girlfriend with Pepsi Max. <laughs> so she's a, we're, to me, it makes no difference. Like you could go to the convenience sort of, okay, 600 mil, but you go, for me, I, I don't care if I buy 2 liters or 1.25. And then I always look at the price per, Liter and two liters almost always cheaper, regardless <coughs> of the LLT. So, I was, yeah. always, I was just wondering where the sort of effort
6: goes into. Like I said, Coke is really, really good at that, right? But there's a utility in each of those products. Your usage is very different. Like I said, you see very few people. I don't know if I've ever seen anyone walking around with a two liter bottle of Coke, right, and drinking it. So, they've been able to use the data to determine what's the right price point, what's that maximization of the consumer's willingness to pay. And I'm going to push it, I'm going to push it. And they've hit the sweet spot, they've hit the sweet spot. But yeah, good question. I just, with the dynamic pricing, yeah. I guess I'm curious to understand if there's any evidence that suggests there's
2: a like a trust issue with that over time. I mean, I've seen some.
6: Yeah, th- those are all things that I think are going to come to light, right? And-, and we even talk about how we segment shoppers, right? We segment them in affluence. We do, bu- you know, we do budget mainstream premium shoppers, right? We already do that in a way. So we sell certain products more in certain areas, right? So I have a pseudo private label cordial. I'll sell a lot more. It's already happening. Maybe you're just not aware of it. But is that potentially an issue? Yeah, it definitely would be. How do we manage that? I honestly, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I think some of that will come to light. Dynamic pricing is something that it's not going to happen overnight, but you're seeing sports teams in the U.S. trying it. It's starting to happen everywhere. It is an opportunity. Will it take over the shelf? Maybe not, but online is on, honestly probably the easiest place to do that. I um, guess the issue
2: I see is where, where there's no perceived benefit. Yeah. The consumer. They feel like they taking that
6: relationship. With yeah, price trust is, is a good point. We hear that a lot. I want to be the trusted price, right? That calls all these pretty much at the same price every day. I need consumers to trust that I have the right price. So they say that they want everything on a down-down mechanic. I don't want these promotions because they don't trust that's the right price to pay for it. That is a struggle. But I think as you shift taste and and people move into towards the online space, it becomes less of an issue because it's about choice. People want choice. There's trends that we're seeing in the market today. We're talking about premiumization. It's real, right? You've got the private label that's happening. And then you suddenly to see that stretch into premiumization. Convenience. Better for you. Better for me. Better for we. Better for the environment. Those things are happening, right? But for that to happen, there needs to be different price points to be able to innovate into those spaces, right? So consumers do want that choice. How do we navigate that? It's a good question. Just a quick question in yeah. regards
2: to pricing. You mentioned something um, off the cuff in regards
4: to, um, talking to a uh, client in regards to, you've got three promotions coming up, what do you want to do in- had that graph of
5: $2 versus $1. Yeah. I'm just trying to figure
4: out what the priority is. Is it about setting a regular price that the, everyone's happy with to have a certain level of consumerism and the promotion
2: solidifies
4: that particular price to ensure a certain amount of consumerism for that particular product? Yeah. Or actually, is it about setting a price which the consumers are kind of happy with, but when the promotion comes in the spike of consumerism actually is the profit-driven or, I suppose, the element that the, the client actually wants. Because it seems like it could go both ways. Like you know, As a consumer myself, I see certain products at certain prices and I know that over a given three-month period, that will go from 25% to 33% to 50% back to full price. Yeah. And that cycle continues. And I'll know when to kind of hit that promotion. So my, my point is, now, is it the set price and the promotion solidifies that,
6: or is it the other way? Yeah, it's a good question. We, well, first and foremost, we don't want you to know that cycle. Right? <laughs> uh, that's really important that we get you out of that, that habit. It's a hard question to answer. And I think for me and and from my experience, it's very dependent. It sounds wishy-washy, but it is dependent on what I'm trying to do for for my product, my brand in the categories that I'm playing, right? So if my strategy is to grow market share, I'm probably pushing my price a little bit more, right? But if I'm owning the category and my my job is penetrate, right? Depending on what I'm trying to do in in the category from a selfish manufacturer perspective, it will change my dynamics. When I become market leader, do I want to be promoting the crap out of the products? No. I don't, but I need to find that right balance, right? So like I showed before, some people are gonna buy the product anyway. So the sweet spot between getting in those new buyers or those lapsed buyers, let's call them, and get them back into the category buying again, versus they're just gonna buy anyway, I've just given them a really good price, right? So if you know that you're gonna buy anyway, I don't want you buying at that promotional price point. But if I've got three other people that have fell out of love with the category, and I can bring them back in, what's my cost benefit? Right? Do I take a small impact on you to bring in three buyers that stay? That's the question, and that's the hard part, and that's why you need all the data. That's why you need all the analytics. That's it. But what happens one week could be completely different three weeks later. Why? You have no idea. <laughs> so that's why there's a bit of art to the science, right? And there's some educated guessing. There is, and that I don't think we're ever going to fully get away. Get away from. Yeah. Uh, do you have a data
2: warehouse
6: or... Yes, we do. Yeah, we do have data warehouse. So we feed our data into that as well. And also we, we loop in some of the syndicated data and bring those together uh, internally. So that allows us to bring build those integrated dashboards, etc. So all
4: happens, the analytics happens on a
6: data warehouse? Yeah, so through there. Yeah, we, that's why we, we collect all the data in there and then spit back down. Yeah. Yeah.
4: Have you been, uh, I mean, it's like a week, Last one. It's like a week uh, general kind of question where it's open to anyone. So have you guys been able to use analytics in order to shift the power from these duopoly retailers towards a little bit towards the supplier side.
2: You to use
6: this. Yeah, it's tough, right? When if you piss them off, you lose half your range. There's a balance. You have to work together. But there are examples that I have someone in my team here today that where we showed the retailer they were running four promotions, right? And for some reason, they're telling you, you have to run these back on back. We're saying that doesn't work for you. Here's the data. And we showed them that how much more money they can generate and how much incremental uplift they will get by phasing these and staggering these promotions out. And they came back to them and they said, yeah, I agree with you. They will move if there's money in it. <laughs> Let's put it that way. If you put dollar signs in front of the retailers, for the most part, they're going to go, thank you very much, I'll take it. And that's been my experience. I don't know if you, guys, if you have anything different there, but...
2: I mean, I would say the shift over time, we used to have all the power because we had the big brands, you know, we think Caracol, Capri, or like, yeah. and then the retailers, as they got bigger and bigger, they sort of took the power dynamic. So they were the ones that dictated what happens in the market. In the last 10 years, it's been a shift to the consumer. So we both serve the same customer, and therefore the way to kind of influence the retailers is to walk in with the right consumer.
6: Just yeah. Last, yeah, last, yeah, I did promise i come back to the uh, last no. one. So, when you're
4: talking about dynamic pricing, that typically has been where you've got perishable. So, has do you think something's changed in the market that it can be you,
2: needed?
6: Yeah, I think you could see it. This is my belief. Everyone here may have a very stark disagreement, right? And this won't happen in the next two to three years. I'm saying this more in terms of the online space. So I'll be able to drive an e windows right now. I promote across a week. The ability now to influence shoppers to purchase on a certain day or a certain time of year. So how can I drive penetration? Maybe someone needs juice for Christmas. How can I get to that buyer on Christmas Eve? that's probably where I'm starting to see more of where, where this could come into more effect. Do I think I, I might see 500 different price points per day? No. <laughs> but the ability to tailor that promotional mechanic within states, within regions, and at price points within days, potentially, yeah. Trust is probably where I'd come back to that, right? If I offer 5,000 different ranges of prices for baked beans per day, it's gonna be very difficult for me to even analyze that data. <laughs>
1: so I, I might just say, we can ask more questions. We'll hang around after this if, if you need to, but I'm um, mindful of the time. So I just wanted to thank
0: I wanted to tell you about the RMIT Online Masters of Data Science Strategy and Leadership. I was one of the industry advisors for this program. It's an online master's program and it covers both data science strategy and leadership and it has also a technical component highly, highly recommended for people wanting to get ahead. With the program, you can gain this advanced strategic leadership and data science capabilities required to influence executive leadership teams and deliver organization-wide solutions. For more information, visit online.rmit.edu.au. I wanted to tell you about We Are Rubix, one of Australia's leading pure data consulting companies, delivering project outcomes for some of the world's leading brands, growing rapidly and with offices in Melbourne, Sydney, and the US, Rubix are as serious about analytics as they are about their pinball. True story, they have like 10 pinball machines in their Melbourne head office. If you're interested in joining a passionate and vibrant team who make work fun, head to wearerubix.com and get in touch today. That we are Rubix, or one word, we are rubix.com and get in touch today. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram as DataFuturology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes if you liked this episode it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast i hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you
2: thanks again and see you next time